When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. And I think, without flattering too much, I think it's an important element in journalism in this country to have ginger groups or gadflies or, or critics to look at what we do. I support Canada Land. I support Canada Land. I support Canada Land. I support Canada Land. Because five or six times a year, something happens in Canadian media, something outrageous and absurd. And I look around and think, why is nobody losing their shit over this? And then I turn on Canada Land and you are losing your shit. And because you seem like a very difficult and oppositional person who makes Canadian legacy media crazy. And I like Because that. Jesse's not afraid to hold the media to account, even though it makes him kind of a dick. You know, I'm a journalist too, and I think it's important that journalists get reported on because we need to know how it feels. As a freelance writer with a voice in the Canadian media, it reminds me of the responsibilities that come with the job. And it makes me feel like I'm not crazy when the world seems to only follow American news media and define Canadian values as either non-existent or exclusively connected to theirs. Canada Land has exposed me to some of the most interesting voices in Canadian journalism, like Desmond Cole and Ricky Machama, for example. Uh, because of your commitment to bringing diverse and often unheard voices on the air, even if you're just going to argue with them. Because I've never heard a male broadcast journalist admit when he's wrong, and I'm willing to pay for that. Because I love hearing about Canadian politics from a perspective that's not my own. What I love most about Commons is that I'm not really politically savvy, 
And I feel like it really speaks to me on that level. There are a lot of political podcasts that are from America, and it's great to hear articulate Canadian voices discussing the topic. I like how it's creating a dialogue between all types of Canadians, and it just breaks down the barriers of divisiveness that politics seems to have uh, gotten into over the past few years. Because every month, for probably less than an ice-cold bottle of Molson Canadian, I can support meaningful, high-quality Canadian journalism that challenges our current norms. Guys, we are your problematic friend. We are your frustrating, argumentative, imperfect advocate, representing your right to ask questions, your right to push back, above all else, your right to know. We are your friend who tells you things you did not know about before. And we're in the mix in this country for keeps. There is no exit strategy here. We plan on sticking around. And I do not know what the best of all possible worlds, the best of all possible countries is. I do not have that kind of ideological, uh, political conviction. But I do know that nobody has a fighting chance of making anything better if we don't know what the hell is going on. And for that, I do have certainty. And that's our fight here. That is the good fight. It is the best fight we know. And we fight it on your behalf with your support every day. And about 500 more of you are supporting us today than at this time last week. Thank you. We work for you now. But the rate of new signups is slowing down. And unless it picks up, unless we get that momentum back up, we will not have the resources we need to bring our curiosity, to bring our questions, to bring Ryan McMahon and his colleagues to Thunder Bay. And Thunder Bay needs questions. Not just because Thunder Bay has the highest homicide and hate crime rate in Canada, not just because of this extortion plot, this criminal scandal that has implicated the mayor, his wife, the chief of police, this high-powered lawyer in Thunder Bay, but because there are still no clear answers on why so many Indigenous kids in Thunder Bay keep turning up dead. Thunder Bay needs more people asking questions, and we want to ask those questions in a new serialized investigative podcast series. And what we've learned this week is that a lot of people want us to make that show, but we need a lot more help if we're going to get there. The scale at which we do these things, the scale at which we operate this company is comparable to a family-owned bakery. We are micro. We are a boutique. These are artisanal podcasts, but the impact of our work is felt nationally, and I want you to support it. Please decide now to switch from becoming a person who is listening to this show because other people are paying for you to do so. Switch from that to someone who is paying for dozens of other people to have it. If you do, we would like to buy you a beer or a t-shirt or a book. Go have a look. The website is patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity 
and they are doing cutting edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. And guys, I am still going to do ads for these next three weeks of the crowdfunding campaign. We can't afford to lose a month's ad revenue while we fundraise. It would sort of defeat the purpose. But I can tell you that ads represent a minority of our revenue. Most of our budget comes directly from listener support. We do need you. Our first sponsor today is Squarespace. With beautiful templates created by world-class designers, Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website in just a few clicks. Go to squarespace.com. Use the offer code CanadaLand. You'll get 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. Alec Baldwin impersonating Trump, Kathy Griffin uh, symbolically disemboweling him, Eminem battle rapping against Trump. None of them have anything on Daniel Dale. Daniel Dale is proving, whether or not he's trying to, that the most effective way to blast Trump is just to fact check him. Uh, I don't know if Daniel will like me saying that. He, he's not a satirist. His goal is not to get laughs or to drag Donald Trump. His project is to methodically and thoroughly test the accuracy of the things that are coming out of the mouth of the most powerful person on the planet. It is not his fault. It is not Daniel's fault that the results are so fucking funny. Trump says, <laughs> Trump says he met with the president of the Virgin Islands, which is in fact himself. <laughs> Donald Trump claimed last week that Keystone XL is under construction. TransCanada hasn't even decided to build it. With reference to Obamacare, 
by is imploding, Trump means I am imploding it. <laughs> Trump's day on Twitter, late night comics are bad, NBC is bad, I'm going on Huckabee's show, war with North Korea sounds good to me. <laughs> and my favorite, Donald Trump just took credit for inventing the word fake. And he fucking did. <laughs> the Trump false claim checker, lie tracker, I'm not exactly sure, this, this project of Daniel Dale's, it, it's not an easy job. Uh, according to Daniel's calculations, as of just a few days ago, Trump had made 688 false claims in his first 262 days in office. That's a lot of work. And... It's work that, to Daniel Dale's growing, massively growing fan base, is like God's work. <laughs> Just exactly what we need. Putting, putting the, like, literally putting the lie to the things that Trump says is exactly what journalism should be doing. And the adulation is very present. Joseph Adelman Bat Pumpkin says... says that Daniel Dale shouldn't ever have to pay for a drink. <laughs> but there are just as many tweets that have a different perspective. <laughs> to Tom Van Dyke, username Dyke Van Tom, checking the facts of the president is not journalism. It is pussy hat sniping. That kind of... of <laughs> of passionate uh, criticism is something that Daniel Dale is very well prepared for when covering elected officials, because of course, Daniel Dale covered Rob Ford. And Daniel Dale will join me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Kim McGoldrick, Sissy Scoville, Sandra Dadashlo, Isabella Johnson, Alex Sawatsky, Christine Desboro, David Williams, and Patrick Boyle. We asked Patrick Boyle why he decided to support Canada Land. I'm an assistant research professor at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, but I grew up in Calgary, Alberta. I support Canada Land because when you and your team find a media story that you can really sink your teeth into... The end result is frequently an informative and thoroughly researched report that shines light upon an area that is desperately in need of illumination. Also, on both occasions when I've canceled my Patreon pledge in a fit of rage and Western alienation, I've found a reason to reinstate it within a few episodes. And this episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Squarespace. Are you ready to start your new business? You can make it stand out with Squarespace. With beautiful templates created by world-class designers, Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website. You can showcase your work, blog, or publish content, even sell products or services of all kinds in just a few clicks. Customize everything from look and feel to settings and products and use Squarespace's analytics to help you grow in real time. Those do help. Not to mention everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. There are 200 extensions to choose from. 
Best of all, there is nothing ever to install, patch, or upgrade. They take care of that for you. Everything under the hood is happening in the background. You've got 24-7 support. A dream is just a great idea that doesn't have a website yet. You can make it a reality with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com, get a free trial. When you're ready to launch, the offer code is CanadaLand. That'll get you 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. That is squarespace.com, offer code CanadaLand. You were blocked by Donald Trump. Yes. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> What's the tweet that did it? You know, I think it was my stupidest fact check. It was, uh, he tweeted uh, recently, people have been nice to Rocket Man, his, his phrase for Kim Jong-un, uh, for 25 years and it hasn't helped. And so I just, I just wrote, uh, 25 years ago, Kim Jong-un was eight. And, uh, and for some, so I thought, you know when you tweet something, you're like, I shouldn't, really, I shouldn't really tweet this, this is too stupid to put out into the world. I'll probably get like 40 like sympathy faves or something. And it got like 80,000 retweets for some reason. <laughs> and I didn't even, I actually asked a friend, like, why is this funny? Like, explain the, the success of this tweet. But then I woke up the next day, literally the next day, and, uh, and I was blocked. Okay, that's amazing. <laughs> But it's almost like the perfect Daniel Dale tweet that depending on how you're looking at it, right? Like, if you're looking at it from one perspective, it's like, you idiot, that, that isn't even possible. And if you just checked the guy's age on Wikipedia, and like, it's on the most basic level, you're, you have such low respect for the facts, and you're reminding him of that. And then if you look at that from the other perspective, you're the guy who's like, mm, actually, <laughs> you know, like you're like Martin yeah. on The Simpsons. And, and I think that, like, that, that's what it comes down to is that people who are critical of you feel like you're just nitpicking, right. like you're some grammarian, you're the guy who like, you know, corrects people's pronunciation on things. Like, that's yeah. not real. Yeah. You're just trying to, to, to pick away at our guy with whatever you can, and these criticisms aren't relevant. How do you respond to that? Well, I have a few responses, but the, the thing I say first is that I, I tell people to think of their personal lives. You know, we all, we all lie probably now and again, defensively usually, so someone catches us in something we don't want them to catch us on. We try to explain it away with something that's, that's not fully honest. But the people we, we really raise our eyebrows at are the people who lie for no reason about little things. And I think it's often the, the littlest ones, the ones that cause people to email me and say, why does this matter, that I think are most revealing about this president's character. And so I think there's a, a story in the individual little ones, and I think there's a story in the frequency, simply showing the accumulation of falseness. And the other thing I'd say is that, you know, a lot of these things that, that are dismissed by some people as irrelevant or inconsequential, you know, they matter to somebody. You know, when he's saying something false about uh, tax policy, it might affect the debate over his tax plan. You know, it's gonna affect real people. When he's saying something false about even Barack Obama or John Podesta or someone in politics. You know, these are, these are real people he's affecting no matter who they are. So I don't think there's, any, there's anything too small to be, to be called out. I want to return to this because I think that it almost feels like everything that we're grappling with right now, just the very nature of objective truth and whether this matters or not, or whether it's subject to interpretation, it all swirls around the work. Like, you're sort of at the center of this all. I want to get back to it, but first to kind of delve into a little bit of uh, your, your history. Our editor, Jonathan Goldsby, is a great admirer of yours and a hell of a researcher, and he brought some stuff to my attention. I just gotta ask you, 
You co-organized a rally in support of Ezra Levant in 2006. In, in, in support, I'll, I'll be more... No, that's, yeah. Fact, support, fact check, fact, fact check. check. Go on. Um, not in support of Ezra Levant, but in support of Ezra Levant's right to republish the Muhammad cartoons in his Western standard. As I understand it, that you were taking a, a, a principled stand that even speech you abhor must be protected. Is that an accurate depiction? of That's of, accurate. Okay. I, I will add that someone called me and said, I'm offering you the chance to have Ezra Levant speak at your rally, and I wouldn't let him come. So that's, why, that's one of my most, most proud accomplishments, banning Ezra Levant from a free speech rally. Was, <laughs> right. Was, yeah. But no, yeah. So I was, I was a university... Sorry, I'll let you go. No, there's something perfect in that, too, is, is yeah. that it's, it's his right that you were defending, but you wouldn't give him a platform. That's yeah. it. I mean, um, <laughs> the principle that you were there defending, that even the worst speech must be protected, is one that has been important to me and that, and that I share, but it's, it's a principle that I felt challenged on recently. I've been, my, my faith in that principle has been shaken because of the sheer onslaught of horrible, hateful speech by people who claim that right as their shield. And I'm wondering if you feel the same. Yeah, you know, I feel like, I don't want to duck your question. So I, I did that before I was really in journalism. I might have done one internship at that time. I was a university student, so I'm, I'm not fully comfortable weighing in on the, the current debate. I will say that my sensibilities are still towards the pro-speech side. So when I read, there's a really good New York Times article recently about this sort of soul-searching within the ACLU which has a history of defending neo-Nazis' right to speak. Um, and in this climate, there's some people within the ACLU who are opposed to that. I think my, my bias is towards the ACLU tradition of defending the speech rights, even of people with very bad speech. But I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say too much. You, you feel like you can say less now than you might have when you were... Yeah, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm not a columnist. They, I, the star gives me amazing latitude to, like, make Twitter jokes and stuff, but yeah... Well, it was in a newspaper in the Guelph Mercury where you wrote about how you felt that uh, universities where intellectual freedom is supposed to reign supreme, uh, they employ people who implicitly and explicitly tell students that only one perspective, the left-wing perspective, is valid. That's another thing that you wrote years ago that has now become this thunderous cry from the Jordan Petersons of the world and, and others that, mm. that, that our campuses are not safe place for conservative thought or for right-wing people. Sure. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so basically, uh, Goldsby's hilarious, by the way. He finds everything, that guy. Um, <laughs> my, basically, I, uh, when I was younger, sort of in my, you know, to the extent I've had an intellectual formative period, you know, I, I was just sort of rebelling between opposite sides. I will say that I've never felt more conservative than while in York University arts classes um, and, and hearing from, you know, some of the, some of the, uh, the, the more uh, left-wing professors there and so I think I had a period there. Uh, I was still in school when I when I wrote that column, just sort of angry that I felt like we weren't getting a a balanced perspective from some of the people who were supposed to be shaping our thoughts. Yeah, it's it's interesting in that bubble you can feel like the establishment is leaning one way and you got to push the other, and then you get out in the world and realize that no, that's just its own very small. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think part of why I ended up in journalism was. Uh, you know, I sort of bounced between ideological perspectives in my late teens, early 20s, and then realized that I found all the sides flawed, and I'd rather just point out the flaws of all of them than, <laughs> you know, than, be, than be, part of a, be part of a team, whether it's left, left or right. So I like, what I like about this role is that you can, you can call BS on progressives, on, on conservatives. You don't feel compelled to defend any side all the time. 
Yeah, you, you, it's not that you're putting something up on a pedestal. Is it, the job is just to be a problem? It's just is just to point out <laughs> mistakes, issues, problems. Sure, it's a good job. Yeah. Why do journalists have such trouble with the word lie? I've heard your work alternately referred to as as a lie tracker and as a false claim tracker, which doesn't have the same zing to it. It does, it does not. And, and I know, you know, it, it, it's sort of a big deal when some papers have decided, okay, well, that was a lie, and we're going to have to say it. So what, what is the, you know, when, when you're dealing with a, a track record like Trump's, where it's just demonstrably, obviously false again and again, and in ways that, I mean, there's an honest mistake, right? But it's like when you realize when you're getting, like, your cold cuts, and it never is wrong in your favor, you know, that they're never undercharging you, that it's not, it feels like that. So why not call it what it is, call a lie a lie? So I, I use the word lie a, a lot um, on Twitter, and I've done it in the paper, and not every paper, unless the reporters do it, and the, the star has. The reason that in my comprehensive or close to comprehensive list of lies, um, I call it false claims, is because I'm not sure that each and every one of them is deliberately wrong. And people laugh when I say this, but I mean it. With, with this president, you can't rule out ignorance or confusion, right? You don't, it's like what, so sometimes, so when he, like, you know, he, he, he says a lot of things that are lies. So one of the craziest ones to me is at his campaign rallies, almost every time he's still having these rallies, he'll, he'll deride CNN and then he'll point at the cameras in the back of the room and he'll be like, oh, the red light, CNN just turned its red light off. They turned off their camera because they couldn't take my criticism. And they've never done that. They've never turned off the camera. And he's, he's looking straight ahead and describing something that, that's not true. Like, there's no word for that other than lie. But in other cases, like when he says, I don't know, when he gets the tax rate wrong or gets something about health policy wrong, like does he, does he know anything about health policy? I don't know, right? So, but the, to your first question, I think the reason that journalists have a hard time with it is because it's not, it's not what, what they do. You know, there, there's a playbook for covering politics and it doesn't involve, I mean, the, the people we're covering, however deceptive or dishonest they may be, they're not deceptive or dishonest in a way that lends itself to de declaring daily that they have lied in a way that, that Trump does. So, you know, people have their habits and it's hard to break out of them. Is there kind of a threshold it must meet for you that, like, is there a checklist that's like, there has to be intentionality to it? You have to somehow be able to yeah. prove he knew what the truth was, he chose another path. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh-huh. Does it work? this growing archive of falsehoods that you're creating. Like you're at whatever, 688 now. Like when you hit a thousand, do the Trump supporters go, hey, wait a second. <laughs> you know, I've had, that's, so I, I get a lot of people uh, emailing me and saying to me like, you know, you're doing great work, but like, why are you wasting your time? It doesn't matter. I will tell you, I believe without evidence yet that it, that it does matter, but I've had actual moments of hope and I'll, I'll give you one. I found a Trump supporter on Twitter when I was writing about the healthcare debate about Trump's proposed, pro, the proposed cuts in the Graham-Cassidy legislation that failed. And I contacted this man in Pennsylvania. He was a dev devoted Trump supporter, but angry with him over healthcare. Um, so I interviewed him. It was fine. And then he messaged me on Twitter like the same day. And he's like, I, I looked you up after you called me out of the blue and I found your fact checks. And so usually like someone will tell me, oh, you know, you're one of those biased lefty fake news journalists. But he said, I had no idea that he told this many lies. I feel, so, I feel so lied to. Uh, I'm gonna share this with all my friends. I had another moment at Trump's inauguration. Uh, this guy was yelling at me at, for, for not covering the assassination attempt 
on Donald Trump in the, the month leading up to the election, I think. And I told him, this was like five minutes into our conversation, and I told him there, there was no assassination attempt on Donald Trump. And he's like, oh, okay. So, <laughs> so, so, on, so these stories are like kind of ridiculous. That gave you hope? It gave me... <laughs> It g- yes, it gave, me, it gave me hope because in, in both of those cases, and there have been a few others, I found that if you can establish some sort of human connection or level of trust with even the most ardent Trump supporters and show them that you are not this, you know, capital T, capital M, the media, this evil monolith they've heard about, but you are a guy trying to do your best to, to convey information, then you can get through to people. So I think that the, the question of our age is how do we collectively rather than, you know, we can't talk to all these people individually, how do we collectively establish that level of trust? It feels like when everyone else was sort of um, in the media, journalists were challenged as to what are we supposed to do? And, and who, like, everything we provide, the polls that we provide were wrong, the punditry, the predictions, um, the mockery, it was also resoundedly wrong or rejected. And then you caught my attention of like, oh, this is just a return to the first principles of what we do. We just, we just say if it's something's true or false, like this almost classic sense of, of objectivity. And yet, if you're pro-facts, I mean, if there's a partisanship to journalism is that you're pro-truth, you're mm-hmm. pro-facts, aren't you de facto anti-Trump? Huh. Um... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I think th- there are people who know that Trump is lying all the time who still support him, who still say, you know, I know that he's, he's often wrong, but he's better than Hillary. He's better than the, the socialist Democrats. I, I think as a reporter, like, I, I, don't, I don't think in, in pro and anti terms. I, I really think, I really think in, in terms of, you know, promoting, promoting fact. Yeah. There's sort of two interpretations to... That I, that I can come up with in terms of how people process it and why, like, I don't think that you're breaking news to Trump supporters when you point out these, with those exceptions that you pointed out notwithstanding, they know that you can't trust everything he says, that he's inaccurate. And either they kind of look at him like, like you could have like an uncle at the dinner table who is blustery and, and, and evocative and tells anecdotes and has big opinions and exaggerates and, and just glosses things over to make his point, but is really compelling and, and natural in a way that like politicians aren't. Politicians, mm-hmm. be, because they're on their talking points, but also because they know that they're facing the scrutiny from us, are clipped in the way that they speak. They're careful, they're exacting. Mm. And part of why he succeeded, I think, is because he's not that way. He feels, he feels like the uncle at the table. So I, I guess the generous read is that they think that, you know, all politicians lie anyhow. Uh, he's our liar. And he lies in a way that is much more humane and, and uh, organic to me. And he, and he believes in the things that he's saying, even if he glosses over some stuff. And I'm okay with it. Yeah. There's another read, mm. which is that they don't care. And that scares the hell out of me. Yeah. I don't know what you do with that, and I don't know what value your job is or any journalists in the face of that. Yeah. I'll say first that I think we can think too much about shaping our coverage to influence this hardcore base of, 20, uh, that, of Trump devotees that may compose like 20 to 30% of the population. There's still a demand for facts uh, and for critical information from 
the mass, the, the, the great majority. With that group though, yeah, it, it can be alarming. I, I went to Ohio um, to do one of these now kind of cliched stories about what Trump supporters think, but I, I want to ask them a specific question, which is about his lying. It was when he was lying about uh, Barack Obama having wiretapped him and Trump Tower, and I wanted to ask people in like, uh, you know, one of these hard scrabble towns of, of Trump voters, do you believe that? And what, what do you think of that? And I had person after person tell me, oh yeah, I know that's made up, but I love it. And I was like, well, what, why do you love it? And they're like, because it's making liberals' heads explode. It's making the elites, you know, all the, all the elites, they would say explicitly, like, they've thought about this, you know, it's freaking the media out. It's freaking, you know, the bureaucrats and people in Washington, it's bothering them. So I like when he lies like that because it angers the people who, who anger me. And I think that kind of sentiment, like, I don't, I don't, I don't the Democrats haven't figured out how to reach people like that. The media hasn't. I, I certainly have no idea. I thought it was fascinating, but disturbing as well. Just total political nihilism, I guess. Yeah, uh, it's like blow, blow up, blow up the system. This is sort of cobbled and butchered together from a dozen different things I read. But, but like, not to get too flaky about it, but like, is this sort of the the backlash of an ongoing process of the assault on the idea of objective truth that from academia and from the left, we've heard things like, well, my truth and assaults on science's authority, assault on history's authority, assault on authority itself, to the point where we've degraded the idea that there is what's true in a way that could just be flipped. And so, well, if anything's true, then maybe this is true. I don't know. I think my read of, of Trump supporters that they believe there is truth, but they often believe that, that he, he has it and, and people like Hillary Clinton don't. So I don't know if it's that kind of postmodern problem or just for whatever for whatever many complicated reasons they don't share the same truth as a lot of other people have so trump you know donald trump he is um he's both a a petulant bombastic man child but also you know this narcissistic businessman with dead shark eyes <laughs> so is he more like rob ford or doug ford <laughs> You expected my no comment to that to that question, right? <laughs> but I, I do, you know, people. It's, a, it's the most common question I get when people interview me here. And the, I think the, the Trump and the Trump saga have so far exceeded the level of craziness of the Ford saga. Like I think it's it's unfair to to Rob Ford to compare him to Donald Trump at this point. It was fun back then, but this has stakes. You yeah, know, like, yeah. This is... I, I, I mean, I, obviously, I think you know, having covered City Hall for four years, I think. Toronto's government is, has stakes as well, but yeah, not not like, <laughs> not not like, but not like an annihilation stakes. Yeah. Uh, here are a couple of quotes. I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, and I wouldn't lose any supporters. Donald Trump. Rob could commit murder on the steps of City Hall, and they would still vote for him. Yeah, Doug I, Ford. I, when I heard that that quote from Trump about shooting people on Fifth Avenue, I was like, I had one of those like deja vu moments. I'm like, I know I've heard that. Where have I heard that? And it was it was Doug Ford, and they and they were both right. Yeah. The indifference to truth, same thing. The vilification of not just the elite uh, ruling class, but of journalists themselves, of you particular, of you being blocked by Trump and you've been targeted by Ford. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't, uh, I mean, besides the things he said about you that you had to threaten to, to sue him over, he, he, he blacklisted the star. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it's kind of uncanny. Like, I feel like you got to see this weird premonition of what was to come, of where the discourse was headed. I mean, do you fathom this? Does it make sense to you? It's crazy. It really is crazy. I mean, I, you know, I thought, I, I was sent to City Hall to the credit of star editors. They thought this Ford era is going to be crazy. We need another person there. So they added to our bureau. But when, you know, when I left City Hall, it was right after the, the Ford era. And I thought, like, obviously U.S. politics is never going to be uninteresting, but I'm going to cover, like, the Hillary Clinton, uh, Jeb Bush, or Marco Rubio presidency, probably, and it's going to be, it's going to be pretty normal. <laughs> I mean, I guess you got lucky. Like, this... this... Yeah, it's like, it's, yeah, it's, it's weird. I mean, you know, people are like, this, you, probably, you probably, like, were secretly cheering for Trump. And, like, obviously it was not you know, rooting for the level of stress and toxicity and craziness of this, of this era. But yeah, it's a, like from a purely selfish personal perspective, I think uh, if Clinton were president or Jeb Bush or John Kasich or any more conventional Republican, there wouldn't really be a niche for me to fill. Like my coverage would be fine. I'd do my best. I'd write, you know, some interesting stories. But um, I think having gone through the Ford experience gave me a level of preparation that a lot of, even the, the best American journalists didn't have for the Trump era. <laughs> it's, I mean, you, you're having an amazing run right now. Who is more covered than Donald Trump? You know, you're, you're, you're you know, swimming in the biggest pond. The, the Washington right now must have the greatest political reporters of our age, and you've really quickly distinguished yourself, and I don't know, like they're, how you measure these things, but Politico named you like a breakout star. You're doing an amazing job. I don't want to take anything away from Thanks. it. It's just kind of amazing that like what you do, like, oh, I'm going to fact check him. Like nobody thought of that? Yeah, it's, thank, thank you for the compliments. But no, I know. And that's, that's why, no, I mean it. You're being, you're saying nice, you're saying nice things to me. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the reason I started, it was September of 2016. And Trump, he was getting increasingly outlandish like even he was take, taking it up a notch and I, I was noticing that um on twitter reporters were do, doing a good job um even tweets to each other of conveying just how crazy this was like they were fact-checking him they're pointing out how surreal the day was but then you'd read their story the next morning or you'd watch the if they're a tv reporter you'd watch their segment at night and the story would just be like trump unveiled his tax plan today Trump talked healthcare today. And nowhere in the, the, the main coverage was it coming through that like Trump was like bonkers today. And so I was like, and Trump was saying, he was literally saying 20 false things in a day regularly. So I was like, how do I, you know, this is not a, it's being treated as a sideshow, something to talk about occasionally. Like this is a show, this is the central, this is a central story of this campaign, the dishonesty. And so I thought, you know, the star gave me a leash to call out Rob and then Doug Ford on their false claims, and they'd probably let me do it again with Trump, so I just started doing it. Do you think that, like, it's interesting, like, I feel like there's almost a parallel, the establishment way that, that a news article presents itself to a reader, much like the way that a Hillary Clinton speech presents itself to a voter, just somehow has lost its currency, is failing to connect, and not to equate you to Trump necessarily, <laughs> But he's a very effective communicator. He, he connects sure. with, and you're an effective communicator, and you found a very memeable, shareable way of imparting. Just if you're trying to disseminate accuracy, journalism, fact checking, like, you know, all that we've seen kind of pop up elsewhere is 
you know, funny gifts and like it's it's a hard thing to take stuff from serious journalism and make it work on social media, make it work in ways that connect in that way. Did it happen on purpose? Uh, you know what I mean? Like like uh, where you know, the way you describe the process, it feels like you were trying to report what you saw in yeah. ways that the other people weren't. But were you also kind of you know uh, conscious of the way that this would be consumed and shared? I had no idea. I think the first inkling was um. The first lists I made covering the Trump era were from the 2016 Republican convention, which was just like, you know, it's forgotten now, but that was just like four days of just surreal, outrageous, weird stuff. And so at the end of the day, I think two or three, at least two or three of the days, I made a list like here is here are the things that happened at the RNC today. And they went they went pretty viral and people are like, whoa, like, so I think there's something about um, just this kind of dry, factual, but sort of clear-eyed about the abnormality of it, I think that resonated with people. Like, I think people tell me, like, you know, you're the only one willing to point out just how outrageous this is, or just how, like, I, that's the, those are the compliments I get. Like, that, that something about their view of how weird this is, is coming, is being matched by my tone or my reporting. The negativity, how, how bad has it gotten? Have you ever felt afraid for your physical safety? Uh, just when covering Rob Ford that time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just specifically from Rob Ford charging you in that, yeah, in that property the, the, with his fist cocked. Yeah, that was the one, that was the one time where, yeah. I, where I've, I've yelled uh, for help while covering politics. <laughs> but uh, no, I, uh, I had one, I think I had one actual threat uh, while covering Trump, but it was clear that it wasn't, it wasn't very serious. So I, I told the star about it. Otherwise, it's just like a lot of toxicity. It's just very angry, very nasty often homophobic, anti-Semitic, racist people in your inbox and on Twitter. Um, so the one, people ask about my mental health. Like, I'm, I'm good. Like, this, this era, it's a privilege for the most part, honestly, to cover the Trump era. But the one, the one thing I've done is try to stop checking Twitter, like, mentions after, I don't know, like 11 o'clock or something. You know, after, for some reason, after I've calmed down, like, the day is over, and then I go back into that world where people are just, like, yelling crazy stuff at me. Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't, it still doesn't, like, bother me hugely, but it gets to me a little more. Where does it end? I mean, I think with Rob Ford, there was a sense that this was a anomaly freak show that like nothing before and then nothing after and immediately after it, I mean, it hasn't been like that. But then Trump happened. What seems to have changed from a media perspective is that a recognition that we have a lot of airtime and newspaper space and a lot, a lot of our discourse is around politics and it could be a lot more entertaining, right? That, and if you can seize that, it's preordained. Those sections, that space is sort of there. And if somebody can kind of infil infiltrate that space and make it a lot more like reality TV, they do really well. And celebrity culture has just sort of like stormed the barricades and, and Ford was the canary in the coal mine, but Justin Trudeau is very effective at it. And then the Trump show is just on TV all the time. And we're seeing that now to mount an effective political campaign, you have to be able to engage in meme warfare. Is this the new normal? And, and, and is your journalism going to become a new standard setter? I mean, it's a hard thing for you to comment on, but like things are changing very rapidly. Is this the way things are right now? And you know, how do you feel looking at your, at your colleagues in the press? Like, and and the, I think we're pretty slow to adjust. I'm not sure. I mean, we, we had, I think, Kelly Leach in the federal conservative leadership campaign 
made a concerted effort to try to capture media in that way, and I think succeeded for a while. You know, like make an outrageous proposal, uh, get your name out there. But she she lost pretty badly, and the, you know the yeah. person the person who won was not especially you know outlandish or or charismatic or attention grabbing. So I don't I don't know to what extent Trumpian uh, media capture tactics work for people who are not Donald Trump. Like this was a, you know, we have to take, we have to analyze, we have to assess our failures, we have to see why Trump succeeded. But he's a very unique figure in a lot of ways. So I don't, I don't know the extent to which it translates. I will say, I think the media has not figured out how to deal with that kind of situation. Like we saw with Leach, you know, she was getting, from my reading from afar, you know, from Washington, she was dominating media coverage of that, you know, like 15 candidate conservative race in the same kind of way that Trump dominated Republican primary coverage. So I, I think we have to try to do a better job, at least until the person is elected. You know, then you have to cover them all the time. But when there's a, a race with, with many real candidates, I think we have to do a better job of, of sharing, of, of giving them something closer to equal time. It's hard when we are in part ratings-based, circulation-based, you know, subscription-based, and the difference in the in the audience reaction is like you know it's demonstrable like it's 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 uh, you, there's no competition so sure. is there something broken in the model you know like, like is that just sort of something that just doesn't uh it doesn't work if you're trying to do the most responsible journalism possible yeah. but you're also trying to do the most popular journalism possible yeah you know i think that's always that's that's always been a a dilemma, a problem for media. I will say that the type of coverage, the Trump coverage I have the least respect for is the, like, the Trump said a thing coverage without any fact checks, without any context. You have entire websites and, and operations that run on this kind of model, like jump on a Trump tweet. Their, their entire article is like, Trump tweeted a thing. It's like, that's not, that's not, that's, that's actively harming the discourse if you're not correcting, if you're not challenging, if you're not providing context. So, we're going to cover outrageous statements, but I think we, we could and should do it better. Daniel, when uh, it was uh, announced that you were going to be going to Washington, Doug Ford asked if he could visit you. Yeah, I forgot about that. He asked to, if he could sleep on my couch. Yeah, so? He hasn't, uh, he hasn't called me. Hasn't called Doug, you? Doug, no, I was, I was looking when Doug, uh, when Doug said he was going to run. I, I looked at my text message history with Doug Ford. It's like the worst like, like grade nine relationship because he's like... Sometimes he's like, uh, hey, buddy, like, or LOL, like, and then, like, every, every, no, and then, like, every now and again, then he'll be like, <laughs> be like delete my number, never, never talk to me again. <laughs> it's, I, I've, I've never, Doug Ford is the most interesting person I've, I've, you know, I haven't met Trump, the most interesting person I've ever covered and, and dealt with on a day-to-day basis. Oh, my God, I hope he comes and crashes on your couch. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be like a sitcom, Daniel yeah. and Doug. <laughs> Daniel and Doug in DC. That'd be so much fun. Daniel, thank you. Thank you. That is your Canada Land show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me. I read everything you send me, and I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at canadaland. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. Go have a look, see how we're doing this week. 
This episode of Canada Land was produced by Russell Gregg. A big thank you to the team at the Hot Docs Theatre in Toronto. Guys, one thing we do is we offer this show for free to dozens of community and campus radio stations across this country, and that syndication work is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do, please support our crowdfunding campaign at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.